Hey y'all, welcome to another episode of The Last Zebra. I'm your host, Ugo Ezama, and today I have a dear friend of mine, uh, Brian Wilson. Thank you for coming to the show. Thanks for having me, brother. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us what, you, what you've been up to. Now, you know, that's a long story. We don't have that much time. So, <laughs> we got time to start. So let's, let's go with the elevator pitch, as I like to jokingly say. So Brian Wilson, yeah. from originally from New Orleans, Louisiana, born and raised, a Bayou boy, all things Southern Louisiana, second line culture, grew up in a family with a lot of love, a lot of party and a lot of social events. And so that is truly who I am as a person. Yeah. And yeah, just loved the city and was happy to move back a few years back. Where, where did you go in between um, growing up here and then moving back? Yeah, so great question. So originally from New Orleans, but right. as every respectful Louisiana citizen, when it was time for me to go to college, I went to LSU. So you go should. Tigers. Yeah. <laughs> as you should. Yep, go Tigers. And after I finished LSU, I actually started teaching middle school for a little while in Baton Rouge. But at that time, I always knew I wanted to go to graduate school. Mm -hmm. And so that eventually led me on a journey all the way to North Carolina, where I entered Wake Forest University School of Medicine, earned my PhD in molecular medicine, and also my master's of business administration. So that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, th this show is about people in medicine, and medicine, this term is very broad. Mm -hmm. And you do work in medicine uh, at a very, what not in a clinical way, but in a very important way. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, I would say it's more of the high-level corporate way. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so I'm actually a medical affairs executive director in pharma. So I work in the pharmaceutical industry. And you say clinical, and it's sort of like a hybrid between corporate science as well as medical affairs and really helping stakeholders. So my customers and stakeholders are health systems, local and regional pairs like your Blue Crosses and Blue Shields of the mm -hmm. world, your United Healthcares. And it's really to help enhance access to medicines for all. We know that there are a plethora of therapies on the market. Sometimes you have about 10 medications for one indication for right. one disease, but it doesn't mean that all patients are getting equitable access. And so a big part of my job is to ensure access, but also make sure that as we're developing new medicines, as we're going through the clinical development process, that those processes are equitable and inclusive of different populations from different backgrounds. That's that's really, really cool, especially in today's world when we know that there is some um, lack of representation uh, for a lot of patients, whether by socioeconomic or by race or by gender, there's lack of uh, representation for our patients. So it's mm -hmm. really cool to hear about that. How did you get into this? Yeah, so it's a good question. And I would say I've always loved science. Mm -hmm. I love science since I was I would say if I had to give it an age, about five years old. Nice. So I remember being five and the world becoming drastically different to me. Trees, the earth, grass, dirt, everything just started to have a bit of a heartbeat to me. Mm -hmm. And I was just sort of sucked into it. And so 
since five, I always wanted to be a scientist. Mm. I would tell people if we fast forward to 10 years old, I remember uh, science fair, someone walking up to my poster. I'm so proud of it, of course, <laughs> just knowing I'm going to win. Yeah, yeah. And they asked me, you know, say, young man, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would always tell people I want to be a scientist and a businessman. Mm. And then if you fast forward. I have a PhD in molecular medicine and I have an MBA. There you go. So you have to be careful what you ask for and what you say when you're <laughs> young because you, you just it. might get it. I love that. I love you know? that. Science, being a scientist is very, very broad. How did mm. you narrow it down to molecular biology? Yeah. So honestly, I, I give that, that fault to my mom. Okay. So you're absolutely right. Being a scientist, you can study all sorts of things, mm -hmm. geology, botany, horticulture, you name it, right, right. geosciences, right. ocean sciences. Right. But why molecular medicine and why clinical science for me? It mm -hmm. really was my mom. So I was raised by a single mother and she was actually in college, still in college in my early years of development. Mm. So she couldn't necessarily afford to have a babysitter all the time. So she would just bring me to class with her. So I remember going to my mom's, you know, uh, physiology classes, anatomy and physiology classes, and she would sit me in the back of the room. She would give me a coloring book, a notepad, and something to do. And I would just listen through osmosis to the teacher's teaching, going over physiological concepts. And that's really where that heartbeat started. That's really where I started all things wanted to know what is that? What's the cell? Yeah, What's yeah, the yeah. enzyme? What's a protein? Like what, what is that really? And it really was those formative years. And honestly, my mom, a few years later, when I was about 11, she actually bought me my first microscope. So <laughs> all of this that I'm doing right now is all her fault. So yeah. I jokingly tell her if I succeed, it's your fault. But if I don't succeed, that's your, your fault, fault too. too. <laughs> what's, what's your mom up to these days? So my mom, she's a supervisor of a lab. Oh, at a major health system here in New Orleans. That's Oxnard. amazing. That's yes. awesome. So she's also in the scientific field to some type of She capacity. is, yes. She's in phlebotomy. And so when you go in to get your blood draws, she's a part of that team. She leads that team as the coordinator, making sure that compliance and quality is where it needs to be and that yeah. patients are getting in and out as fast as possible. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. What did you teach after after college? What, what, what uh, yeah, classes? Yeah, so such a nerd. I'm going to have a huge nerd moment right now. <laughs> okay, go so, ahead. I graduated from LSU in 2008 okay. and knew I wanted to go to grad school at some point, but I didn't get in right away. Mm. So, but that was okay because I graduated in December of 2008. And so it was an awkward time. Usually when master's doctoral programs began, it's not until the summertime. Mm -hmm. So I actually started thinking, what can I do to use up my time and and what what can I be of most service as? So I was already working at Walgreens part-time as a pharmacy technician. Mm. So that sort of also fueled my love for medicines mm -hmm. and understanding how they're made and how they're efficacious in different patients. Right. But then also I needed another job because I needed to <laughs> I had to pay rent and yeah, all those things. No, yeah, no, no more, no more uh, loan money and things like that coming from financial aid <laughs> through college. So I had to just, you know, get it in. Mm -hmm. So I took a job as a temporary middle school teacher. So I taught sixth through eighth grade mathematics and science. So I taught algebra, pre-algebra, earth sciences, and life sciences. Was that was that given to you, or you decided to just pick up? Because ma math is one thing, algebra mm -hmm. is one thing, earth science is another thing. Like, how did you did you pick those subjects, or was that 
Was it an opening that you were just like, kind of, kind of? Well, I worked for a charter school, mm. and at a charter school, a charter school that was failing. Yeah, yeah. I'll just say that you you get what they give you. You you sort of jump in wherever the need is, yeah. and so the need at that time was to have a middle school earth science life science pre-algebra algebra teacher and the school that i was working at it actually worked out great because i was already tutoring at that school gotcha. when i was an undergrad at lsu so it was a seamless transition to just go into that and I already knew the principal i knew a lot of the science coordinators i knew the librarian right because right, right, i would right. tutor kids in the library for the leap test the math and science portion of the mm. leap test, you see, so it was it was a seamless transition. And you did that for three years before going back to your own schooling. No, I actually only did it for about eight months. Oh, okay, mm -hmm. okay. Did it for okay. about eight months because I kind of started before I graduated, mm -hmm. and then I continued it all the way through until the summertime. Gotcha, gotcha, mm -hmm. gotcha. Yeah. So you you graduated December, so then you just did it up until, and then you went to masters. Yes. So so actually, I skipped the masters phase, which is a unique opportunity. We could talk about it more. Yeah, yeah. Tell me. So when you get a PhD, you, you don't necessarily have to get a master's degree first. Gotcha. So you can skip that phase. But what I did was a unique preparatory program called the post baccalaureate program. Mm. So after teaching that summer, that next summer, yeah. I packed up all of my things, moved to North Carolina and started at Wake Forest University. But I wasn't a graduate student yet. So I wasn't an official PhD student just yet. Okay. So that first year I got there, I was what was called the post baccalaureate scholar, gotcha. which is essentially a year program where it's really nice. It's sponsored by the NIH. It's called PrEP. You get paid the stipend, mm -hmm. and it essentially mirrors your first year of graduate school. Ah. So I did that program for a year at Wake Forest and then started officially as a PhD student that next year. Gotcha. So, so from a from a biological sciences perspective, you, you, your master's, the one you you spoke about earlier, was really the MBA. Yes. There, there's, no, there's no biological science master between your undergrad and your PhD. Yeah, so I never earned a master's in molecular medicine or a gotcha. master's in biochemistry. I, didn't I entered my PhD program and I just took it through all the way. And that's the unique thing about the biomedical sciences. Yeah. You don't necessarily have to go through earning a master's first before you qualify for a PhD. Now, the unique situation I was in is that Wake Forest was a unique university such that they actually had a PhD MBA program. Gotcha. So that's why I wanted to stay at Wake Forest. Everything was meticulously calculated, a little bit chaotic sometimes, yeah. but I wanted to get into Wake Forest really bad, not just to do the prep year, but to also get into the graduate PhD programs there because I knew once I completed my first two years of PhD education that I would qualify for the MBA portion of the dual degree program. And so once you go through your qualifying exams, which is similar to like a step one, yeah, yeah, but yeah, for yeah, PhD yeah, students, yeah, yeah. you qualify, you become what's called a PhD candidate, and mm -hmm. then with your advisors and the dean's permission, then if you're in good standing, you can start the MBA portion at night. Wow. Wow. That's actually really, really cool. So what does the prep guarantee that you'll get into the PhD program if, no. if, if you do well? No. Oh, yeah. So that's that's the point I was going to make up. And I'm glad you brought it up. So even though you do you can do prep at mm -hmm. an institution mm -hmm. does not guarantee you admission. So 
even though I knew many of the professors at Wake Forest School of Medicine, I was working in a lab at Wake Forest School right. of Medicine. I was doing well. I was taking classes at Wake Forest School of Medicine, doing very well. It did not guarantee an admission. So I had to apply, go through the interview process just like everyone else. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Was there a... It, was there a degree, I guess we kind of said this earlier, but was there a degree attached to the prep program? Like, do you graduate from the prep program? Or no, it's, just, it's a, just, no, you just complete the program, you get a certificate and... and you, it's a one-year program? It's a one-year program. Gotcha. How long was your PhD? It was six years. So in total, it was seven years you spent at Wake Forest? Seven years, wow, yes. Wow. Yes. A I, bit of a journey, too, that I, we can get into. I can imagine, <laughs> I can imagine. So what, how... I've never had the opportunity to talk to someone about a PhD program. I know mm -hmm. it takes forever. Um, the closest I ever thought about PhD was doing a combined MD PhD. Mm -hmm. But that, I mean, if it's six years to do to do, <laughs> to do <a> PhD, <laughs> MD PhD, my, my cousin who, who I love dearly, she did an MD PhD program. She mm -hmm. started medical school before me. Mm -hmm. I think I was done. <laughs> training, <I'm sure. laughs> training before she was done she was anywhere close to being done that's why i didn't do that program either the, the md phd <laughs> no no mm -mm. so what 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 is that what is a phd program like and and you did what what did you do yours in specifically yes how did you choose that and what ha, what was what were those six years like and it's a lot to unpack there but yes me. and i'll try my best to yeah. give you the see the streamlined version yeah. so Basically, when you enter a PhD program, you are entering a program such that you are signing up to start your first two years as coursework and pretty much being really coursework heavy. Okay. So you, we even take... So the good thing about PhD programs, a lot of them are aligned and affiliated with medical schools. So a lot of times you're sitting in the same classes as medical students sometimes. Gotcha. It's not all the time, but right. in some cases you will have some overlap. Yeah. But the difference is a PhD can take anywhere from about three and a half years to seven years. Now, most PhD programs will cap you at seven years. I know some people that it took them seven years to earn to their PhD. Done. Now, we'll get into why it took me about seven years, six years in, 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 in a few minutes. But basically, you join this program. The goal is for you to become an independent thinker. And the only way you can do that is by aligning yourself with the field of study. So for me, at Wake Forest School of Medicine, I could have studied any area of science. There were, there was cellular cancer biology, there was molecular medicine, there was physiology, there was neuroscience, mm -hmm. all of these different fields. But I specifically chose molecular medicine because that was the PhD that was most clinically aligned. So I did that for a very intentional reason, because I wanted to be a scientist that could transcend the lab. So oh. I didn't really, I didn't want everything that I did to be so wet lab science based. I wanted to be able to speak the same clinical language as physicians who are treating patients speak. I wanted to just be at the juxtaposition of being a scientist that was more broad. And I felt like the molecular medicine PhD would give me that. Gotcha. Now, in that molecular medicine PhD program, I actually rotated and did rounds with medical students. Ah. So it was, it was, and I did that for the first two years. So it was a great all-inclusive experience. 
I got to see um, patients at the bedside. I get I got to learn from attendings, mm-hmm. and it just it it broadened my scope. It opened right. my world, and that was intentional because I knew when I finished my PhD, I wanted to be able to work on projects that were not so wet lab based, but right. were able to transcend and have direct patient applicability. That's awesome. That's awesome. And you mentioned it can take about three and a half years to six, seven years. Mm-hmm. What determines that that duration? It really just determines your project. So mm. when you start a PhD program, your first, like I said, your first two years are really course heavy. But after your first year, you have to select a PhD advisor and you have to select a lab. So depending on what lab you're in and what project you're given, right. because very rare does a PhD student get to pick their project. Oh, I didn't know that. No, I, normally, I, thought, I thought you pick your project. Not, it, it's, it's a symbiotic relationship between gotcha. you, you and, and your, your advisor. PhD advisor. Gotcha. But at the time, Ugo, sometimes if you're a green new PhD student, you don't know what projects are going to be the most fruitful. That's true. So you tend to pick a project with your PhD advisor in mind. Mm-hmm. You work on it together mm-hmm. and you kind of try a bunch of different things. And you hope that the project you choose doesn't take a really long time, but you can't control these things. So it really just depends on how fruitful the project, how productive it's going, or are the cells growing like they're supposed to? Or if you're working with animal models, like yeah, some yeah. of my PhD colleagues and myself, I work with rats, rodent models, mm-hmm. mouse models. It just depends on the project and how it's going. Sometimes you can work on a project for a year and a half, and it's a, a complete flop. And then you have to restart. And then you have to restart. You have to start over. Wow. But the goal, but, but what PhD advisors try to do, you're not penalized for a project flopping because there's still something to be learned from that. You know, as I said before, when you sign up to get a PhD, you're learning how to think. They're teaching you how to become an independent thinker. Mm -hmm. And so just because a project fails doesn't take anything. It doesn't take away from you becoming an independent thinker. You're learning the scientific method and the process. So you don't necessarily get penalized for that. But sometimes, depending on where you want to go and where you want to take that project, it can extend your your tenure. Is it possible then to to complete a PhD program having no successful projects? Yes, it happens all the time. Wow, it's not ideal, right. and I'll tell you right. why. Right, you really want to have something to show for your work, and what I mean something to show, I'm specifically talking about peer reviewed journals. You want to be able to get your project to the place where you can actually publish the work right, so right. that you can share it with the scientific community. Right, right. Right. So if everything you've done has failed and you have no opportunity to share that, then it doesn't give people an opportunity to see you. Right. It doesn't give you a chance to sell your science. It doesn't even give you an opportunity to present that science at national and international meetings. Mm-hmm. So it's really important. You know, mistakes happen. Right. They are inevitable, but you really want to work on a project and see it through such that you can get it to publication. That's really interesting. So in, in this in this particular context, when you say project, what you mean is research. Yes, your research project. Yeah. So whatever. And so when you choose a lab, you choose to work in an area that's your PhD advisor's expertise. So for me, 
I worked under a brilliant scientist named Dr. Mark Chapel, mm-hmm. and he was amazing. He was a world-renowned renal physiologist. Mm. His bread and butter was renal physiology, hypertension, diabetes, and all things cardiovascular right, disease. Right, 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 and right. so I actually trained in the Wake Forest Hypertension Research Center, gotcha. by which all of the investigators and scientists in that center, they worked on some aspect of hypertension mm-hmm. or they worked on some aspect of cardiovascular disease. And because cardiovascular disease is something that impacted my family, it impacts the African-American community, I felt drawn to that. I also felt drawn to the fact that in a lot of cardiovascular diseases, lifestyle modifications can mitigate many of them. Right. So it was just a natural progression for me. Wow. I mean, I, do you do you now still do some sort of active research? Nah, nah, not anymore. Nah, gotcha, now. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. How how does how does the PhD program? ultimately then assess that you are an independent thinker yes how do they ultimately assess that so after you know four or five six years what's that final test is it like uh you know you sit in front of a bunch of people and they ask yes, you some questions absolutely that's really? exactly how it is really yeah so so as i mentioned after about two two and a half years of being a PhD student mm-hmm. so we'll back up just a little bit mm-hmm. after one year year one mm-hmm. you're taking classes you choose a lab at the end of your first year, yeah. and then you enter that lab that summer after mm-hmm. your first year, and you start working on your project. You start working on your research project, trying to gain data, trying to see what the project is teaching you. Mm-hmm. It's really important not to be so egocentric with the science. Let the science show you where it's going. Gotcha. A lot of PhD students mess up with that. So I learned that early from my advisor, Dr. Chapel, is really let the science lead you. And so pivot. Don't be so married to a concept mm-hmm. because you could... You, could, you can fail right. and it can take longer. So I learned that early on. So as you're working on a project, that's what you're looking for. And then after about two years, one and a half, two years in the lab working on that project, you get to a place where you are eligible for candidacy. So that's dependent on a couple of things. Are you in good standing in the lab? Meaning that are you a productive graduate student? Do you have a good rapport with your advisor? Are the two of you on the same page? Right. Number two, are you in good academic standing? So do, is your GPA what it's supposed to be? In grad school, you can't fall beneath the 3.0. Mm-hmm. So that's really, you know, that's not too hard to, to attain. Right. But it's not really, the PhD program is not really about the academics. It's really about you learning how to be a researcher. Right. And then the third part is, do you have enough data? Is the project fruitful enough such that you can take that into the latter portion of your PhD training. So if you meet all of those criteria, then you prepare for something called your PhD candidacy exam. And that's where you present your preliminary studies. Mm -hmm. You present the data you have so far. Mm -hmm. For me, I was blessed because I actually had published. I was actually able to publish a piece of my work prior to going into my preliminary exams. Wow, wow. So I was real confident about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I didn't feel like I wouldn't I wouldn't pass. Right. But you never know. You present your work to a closed room. Mm-hmm. I also mentioned that you mentioned like a group of people. Yes. But as a PhD student, you have what's called a PhD committee. It sometimes is about five to six people. So you present your preliminary work to that committee yeah. and they ask you a bunch of questions. They send you out of the room. They deliberate. 
they bring you back in the room and you just you count down until you hear the words that you want to hear that you passed. And 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 that's it. That's how you get your PhD. And no, that's how you progress the candidacy. Oh, yes. So oh. that's 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 and it's equivalent to what medical students take as the step one. Right, right. So right. then once you become what's called a PhD candidate, then it's really a rat race. Then it's really around okay, what what are the pillars? What are the objectives that are set by your committee that you can achieve as quickly as you can? By that point, it's just really about making your research portfolio more pro, more robust. Okay. And so that's what you do. And, and that could take anywhere from another two to three years. And what, what's, what's the final hurdle? So the final hurdle is similar to your preliminary exams, similar to your PhD candidate, yeah. candidacy exam, but now it's more public. There's a public portion and there's a private portion. Mm. You probably heard of it called a PhD defense. Yeah, that's. I think that's what. Yeah, that's yes. the one I'm more familiar yes. with. Yes. Yeah. So that's where you defend your data in a public forum. It's open to the complete public, so people off the street come can in? come and listen to your lecture and ask you questions, and you have to answer them. So to, the, to the best of your ability. So that, that, that's the whole defending your thesis. Uh, that's thing. the concept of defending because you have to remember science is for the it's for humanity right right and so that was all a part of the the philosophical basis of science is that you shouldn't do science in a silo it shouldn't be in secret it should be shared with humanity Mm -hmm. and so if you are doing that you should be open to sharing it and defending your science and defending your theories and your reasoning and so that's the public portion and then the private portion is when you go off to a side room or most of the time, it's like a, a office space right, of some right, sort, right. a conference table, mm-hmm. and you sit around that table, and your committee, they ask you deeper questions about your science. And what they're trying to do, they're trying to make sure that you're prepared such that when you get to the next step and you actually graduate, that you'll be confident. How long does that entire process, so how long is the public portion? How long is the private portion? Yeah, so normally your PhD defense public lecture is no more than an hour. Okay, gotcha. So you give an hour lecture, maybe 45-minute lecture, Mm -hmm. 15 minutes for questions. Mm -hmm. And then now the private session, that can take anywhere from an hour to two hours. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. What was yours like? The the public? The public? The public yeah. Oh, it was a celebration. Really? It was a celebration because you should be confident by that time. Yeah. By that time, by the time I got there, I had published five papers. I knew my science well. I was confident. My PhD advisor, he believed in me. My committee believed in me. Mm-hmm. It was really a conversation. When we got into the private space, it was a conversation, but it was still an impactful and challenging conversation. Mm -hmm. But it was really around them ensuring that I had that confidence that I can go into another lab or I can start my own lab if I needed to. So by the time I got there, it was a celebration. So it was a little emotional. My cousin, um, who's the only other PhD in our family, she was able to attend. So it was a good time. Nice. It was. does that does that process so for instance what if you got stumped at your at your public or private so someone asked you a question um that was profound enough that you weren't ready for and Mm -hmm. maybe not ready is not the right answer but i guess the question i'm asking is how do you answer a question that you don't have the answer to 
as a if, if that comes up in your defense of your thesis? How how not, do you answer that question? So not to deflect, how do you answer a question that you don't know the answer to? I'm usually very honest about it, and it happens in medicine, right? So mm -hmm. you know, our families, our patients, they mm -hmm. will ask, like you know, so what do we do next? What's going on? And a lot of the times, the the right answer, which is the honest one, is that I don't know. I don't know. Same here. But I'll I'll find out. I'll try and find out. Same here. Gotcha. Same here. I've been on national podiums yeah. presenting to 500 people in the right. audience yeah. at a National Scientific Con Congress or conference. Yeah. And someone will ask me a question and my mind will go completely blank. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be like that. Sometimes you do know the answer yeah. you can't recall. Yeah. They That's may true. ask you some minute detail and you've done the work sometimes, but you just can't think of it. Yeah. And then sometimes you do get a question and you just don't know it. Right. And you respectfully and humbly you say, thank you for the question. I really appreciate it. At the moment, I don't know. But I have taken a note on that. And if you'd like to have a further discussion, I'm happy to have a one-off after the meeting or in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, I like that. So always show the ability that you can figure it out. Yeah. I, I, there's, this, there's this quote I heard a while back. It says, everything is figureoutable. <laughs> it is like true. It's, it's really true. Everything is figureoutable. So I never felt less than a scientist because I couldn't answer a question. If anything, it makes you a more confident scientist because you know your limitations. That's pretty awesome. I, I, some of my favorite um, scientists in the public, uh, in public view and public knowledge are very open about how, one of my favorites, Carl Sagan. And mm -hmm. he, he often talks about knowledge as the more you know, essentially, I, I don't know if this quote is attributed to him, but the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Something yes. to that effect. Yes. Right? And yes. And I love that because it's sort of similar to something that I always say. I'm a spiritual person, mm -hmm. so I'm like, you can't be a scientist and not believe in God. Okay. Tell me about it. Because this. you can't see anything that you're working on. Mm. But you believe that it's there. Mm -hmm. You see? So it's, it's faith based? It's as well. faith. <laughs> Science takes a lot of faith. It is in its ritualistic faith. Mm. It's not faith that's transitionary or transient or, oh, I'm going to have faith because I want to. You really have to be dedicated and committed. It's ritualistic. Yeah. It's like, I love poetry. Like one of my favorite poets, Derek Walcott, he's from St. Lucia, the yeah. Caribbean. He says, yeah, yeah. Everything you do that's worthwhile should be real ritualistic. Mm. Doing something worthwhile should be ritualistic. Mm. And so that's how I feel about science. You 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 got to have faith because I've never seen an enzyme. <laughs> that's true. I've never seen a protein. Yeah. I've worked on a protein called angiotensinogen for six years. I don't even know what it looks like. Right. I know it's protein structure. Right. I know what its DNA sequence looks like, but that's just letters on the page. Have I actually physically seen and touched angiotensinogen? No, but I have faith that it's real. And it's there. And you have you have faith and you have, at this point you have evidence as well. Yes, and yeah. I have evidence to prove that it's there. That's interesting. I, I, mm -hmm. Let's dive into that a little bit because mm -hmm. oftentimes there is a conversation about how science and faith 
aren't really uh, compatible. How do you feel about that? I mean, obviously you feel really strongly about it. Obviously, mm-hmm. I, I mean, just based on that, the, the previous few minutes that you, you, you feel like it is compatible. Yes. How do you communicate that? How do you talk to someone else that feels that those two are not compatible? Well, I say, this is how I put it. We think everything is separate mm-hmm. and nothing is separate. Everything is connected. Mm-hmm. So if I am a cell, one cell, I have, I have organelles. I'm, I'm made up of things. Mm-hmm. I'm a sum of things. Mm. And such as a human being, we're a sum of things. That pattern, that replication of patterns of things being a sum of other things, Mm -hmm. that's a constant theme in nature. That's a constant theme in biology. Mm -hmm. And everything follows order. Mm -hmm. And so I I simply tell people, nothing is out of order. Every receptor on the cellular surface has a ligand. Mm -hmm. There's a specific ligand that binds to that receptor and it makes something happen inside the cell. If you try to bind something else to that receptor that's not supposed to be there, nothing's going to happen. And it's the same with us. If we are not, I kind of think about it like when you're pursuing your purpose. Mm -hmm. If you're not attaching yourself to the right thing, nothing's going to happen. But if you are attaching yourself to that thing, that you're supposed to be doing, then a cascade of positivity can come out of that. And so it's a simple way of breaking it down, but it's really helping people to see that even even a cell has order. Mm -hmm. Even a cell is dedicated to its purpose Mm -hmm. and it's trying to attach itself to the right thing. And you feel like that order comes from a higher higher source. I do. I feel like that. And because, like I say, it's faith. When you're in a lab, purifying proteins most people in their life won't even know what that is and not alone won't even get to see what it is but it's literally clear liquids in tubes going through other clear tubes (laughs) coming out as more clear liquid right right and but there's life in that liquid there's something there and we know it to be true because that's how we get the development of new medicines Mm -hmm. that's why i work in the pharmaceutical industry that's how you're able to prescribe things to mm-hmm. your patients. It's through all of those processes. And you got to have faith because you can't see any of it. Be, you can't see any of right. it, but you know it's there. Yeah, I love that. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I, well, Something you said, um, connecting or attaching yourself to your purpose. Once you find what that purpose is. Uh, unleashes a cascade of positivity. I love yes. that. That's yes. awesome. And that's exactly what happens inside of a cell. Mm-hmm. Once something gets activated on the cell surface, it changes the whole cellular environment. We know that when the intracellular environment is damaged in some way, mm-hmm. it causes that cell to be reprogrammed in a negative way. So under normal circumstances, if that cell will use cancer as an example, if that cell is supposed to die, it doesn't die like it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. It keeps replicating, 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 getting bigger and bigger and bigger. We know what happens when it gets so large becomes a tumor. Right. 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 And so everything has to have a purpose. All cascades have to have an order. When things are not in order, it's chaos. Right. Right. That's beautiful. That's mm-hmm. beautiful and well said. What what happened then after? So after the celebration, 
you had your your public defense you did your private defense after yes what happened after that so immediately after that did you have something lined up next i did okay what was next i did so similar to residency mm -hmm. as medical students or mm -hmm. mds would take i entered into what's called a postdoctoral fellowship oh and so that's when i moved to unc chapel hill university of north carolina mm -hmm. chapel hill which is in chapel hill north carolina <laughs> yeah. Go Tar Heels. No, I'm not a fan, but I, I just have to say it. Yeah. I got a lot of friends that are Tar Heels, but um, the light blue, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so went there and did a postdoctoral fellowship in cardiac pathology, and I thought I would be in academia for the rest of my career. Really? I thought I would do well in that lab. That was my faith, and then all that was flipped on his head when I met a nice young woman named Brittany, <laughs> Brittany Jordan at the top. <laughs> now, now Brittany Wilson. Now Brittany Wilson. Dr. Yes. Brittany, shout out to Dr. Yeah, shout out Wilson. to Dr. Brittany Wilson. We, we got to get on the podcast. <laughs> you do. Yeah, you do. we got to get on the podcast. She's amazing too. Yeah, you got to make it happen. I believe it. I believe you. <laughs> but yeah, I've met Brittany. Brittany is fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so so what's, what is a postdoctorate fellowship? Yes, yeah, so it's more training. Just, just to sum it up, more training. Is just it, like when you do a fellowship, yeah, yeah, yeah. when you do residency, just more training. It's just helping you to hone your craft. Mm -hmm. And depending on the lab, you choose. Some people do like so. Some people will go into a completely different lab for their postdoctoral fellowship. And you're and it's okay to do that. And it's perfectly fine. Gotcha, gotcha. It, it may be more challenging for right, you because right. you may have to start from scratch. But remember, as a PhD student you've learned the scientific method mm. and you're a lifelong learner. Right. So that's what I love about science. You're always learning. So some people would go into something completely different. I switched organs a little bit because I did a lot of kidney and renal work as a PhD student. Mm -hmm. And then as a postdoctoral fellow, I moved mm -hmm. into the heart. But it was still cardiovascular related. Gotcha. Just had to learn heart physiology. I was just about to ask you because obviously your mentor mm -hmm. um, was a renal renal physiologist, yes, uh, hypertension uh, mm -hmm. specialist, and hypertension hypertension the kidneys and the heart are interrelated. They are, but the heart is a very different organ altogether. Very different. So very complex. How did you switch from that to, to how or why? Why did you switch to to cardiophysiology? To stretch and grow, Ugo. Mm. To stretch and grow. To get outside my comfort zone. I had did a little bit of you know, a little bit of work in the heart while I was a PhD student, yeah. kind of dibbled and dabbled. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the great thing about science is even when you're a PhD student, even though you're working on a primary project, yeah. you can still collaborate. As long as you're getting your work done, checking those boxes, you can collaborate. You can get on other papers. You can right. help others with their research. It's, it's supposed to be inclusive right if you're doing it now you can't try to get yourself on other projects right. if you're not taking care of home right. as we say right you got to take care of home first yeah. and then you can venture out so i knew i wanted to venture out do something a little bit different and get into a different organ type as gotcha, well gotcha. so moved into the heart and i did that man i was doing well set up my own lab at chapel hill and and then i, I just started thinking about the broader applicability okay. of the signs I wanted to do and how I wanted to go broader. Mm -hmm. And at that point in my life, I was really looking to get out of the lab setting. Mm -hmm. And so, and that was coupled with me meeting Brittany. Mm -hmm. And so I made it, I made a decision to, 
okay, once I'm done with this first year of my postdoctoral fellowship, it's time for me to spread my wings. And that's when I put my uh, my eyes on the pharmaceutical industry. Gotcha, gotcha. Mm-hmm. So you did that for one year. Yes. Is that standard? No, mm. no. So normally a postdoctoral fellowship can be anywhere from one to three years. Most gotcha. of the time it's about three years. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So I actually ended up, when I left, I left grants on the table. I had grant funding that was still on the table, things that I had earned mm-hmm. as a part of preparing for that next phase yeah. once I finished my PhD. And at the time, I I knew that I wanted to make a greater impact. I wanted to I wanted to work on projects that were a little bit more high level. And I really wanted to leverage my MBA. Got to remember, Man. I have this MBA sitting there and not a real opportunity to leverage it. Yeah. So I knew transitioning into the pharmaceutical industry will give me the nice opportunity to couple the two. What, what was your thought process in, in making that decision? So mm-hmm. you, you, one, you, first of all, you took a, a leap of faith, mm-hmm. right? But you, you had a plan in place. You've, you definitely strike me as someone who's very meticulous mm-hmm. about how you made this, this, these decisions. Mm-hmm. How, what was your thought process to say, all right, I'm year one into my postdoctoral fe- fellowship. Um, I want to do something more. Yes. How did how did that thought go from there to work in the pharmaceutical in the industry? Honestly, it was when I earned my MBA, mm-hmm. I knew at some point, Ugo, that I wanted to transition out of the wet lab setting. So yeah. that's your bread and butter bench. working in a lab bench science. Mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to transition out of that at some point. And I was so dedicated to the lab. I mean... I had given my whole 20s right. to the lab. Right. You understand? Mm-hmm. My whole 20s were spent working in the lab, hustling, grinding, and it paid off. Right. I did extremely well in grad school, mm-hmm. despite having to switch labs in between there, mm-hmm. here and there, there, still did extremely well. And after that first year of postdoctoral fellowship, I started looking at my life, man, and I said, I, I met this wonderful woman. I had never made time for love in my life. Mm-hmm. I had never, I never had time for that. Yeah. It was all about productivity, productivity, productivity. And I wanted, I just wanted to do something different. And I, but I knew I wanted to stay in science mm-hmm. and I wanted an opportunity to leverage the aspects that I learned within my MBA. Right, right. And right. so that's really what I set my eyes on leaving that fellowship. And then I started applying to different jobs. Mm -hmm. But as you said, I'm meticulous and I am. It didn't come fast. (laughs) So it took me a while to land that first gig. Yeah. But it all paid off. Nice, nice. Mm -hmm. Is that the gig that you're at right now? No. Okay. No. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So. Okay, so where where are you at now? Yeah, so now I'm at Genentech. Gotcha, gotcha. Which is a biopharmaceutical company based in South San Francisco, Mm, California. mm. And your role there is, are you able to still leverage both MBA and and your PhD? Absolutely. Gotcha. So my official title is Medical Affairs Executive Director. Gotcha. And in my role, I essentially act as the chief medical officer for a region of the U.S. Mm. So right now in my capacity... I am the medical executive director for the state of Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and a Florida panhandle. Wow. And it's a cross-portfolio role. Right, right. And I still get the leverage 
my MBA skills because within the role, I get to interact with the commercial team quite a bit. I actually co-lead those territories I just mentioned mm -hmm. with the commercial counterpart. Gotcha. So I have to leverage aspects of my MBA to understand their priorities and their objectives as well. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. What's what's is this a role that you feel fulfilled in now that you're utilizing so many of the 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 things that you work so hard for? I do. I do. I feel like honestly this role it's like I say it's cross portfolio it's comprehensive. It's all things like it just it's it's medical strategy. It's pop health strategy. Mm -hmm. It's health equity strategy. It's trying to help health systems understand how to advance inclusivity and in clinical trials. It's all of those things. And it's learning how to collaborate with a commercial team who are sales focused. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, the yeah. you know, that's the business sales side of the organization, yeah. which you need to bring in profits to fund more research. And so it's it's been it's been really fulfilling. I've been able to work on a lot of great projects. I feel like I've been able to really you know, spread and stretch my wings. Um it's just been such an interesting ride because there are things that I've been able to work on here that I would have never thought I'd be able to work on, like yeah. large-scale health equity projects. Um really public speaking engagements, being involved and getting to know senior leadership mm -hmm. as high as our CEO, mm -hmm. having dinner with him, having opportunities to get connected with our policy and access team and, and understanding how, you know, how patients get equitable access to yeah. medicines and care. All of that has been really eye opening. And you mentioned this question earlier, do I still have a chance to do research and not at the bench level, but I still do research too. Oh, gotcha. Mm -hmm. What, what does that research look like now? So now it's more population health based research. And so my lab is now the public health gotcha. of the community gotcha. and the States that I lead. And it's really around understanding how can we create efficiencies at the health system level? Mm -hmm understanding how patients are having barriers to access to care and also how are patients how are patients being taken into account when it comes to the drug development process mm. so i'll give you an example of why that's important when you think about this new concept of personalized medicine yeah. it's a really broad term and people really don't understand what it means mm -hmm. what it means ugo is tailoring a medical intervention to the patient but in order for you to do that accurately you have to have a robust understanding of the broader community of patients that are from diverse backgrounds. And one thing that's happening or that has happened over the years, when we talk about genetics, biomarkers, really understanding the nuts and bolts and some of the more personalized aspects of care and how you can connect the patient to the right therapy at mm -hmm, the right time, mm -hmm. you have to have a diverse genetic information database. But most of the genetic information in databases are 95% white. Mm. They come from the genetic background of white individuals, and these databases are not very diverse. So one goal that we try to do is advance inclusivity in clinical trials such that more diverse patient populations can be studied so that you have a more comprehensive understanding of how efficacious a, medis a medicine could be. Right. Yeah. We, we uh, actually, at our at my job, we switched um, 
our patient population. So in, in, in pulmonary medicine, we have pulmonary function tests. And the standard for pulmonary function test is based off of a, uh, a data set of patients to mm-hmm. kind of get what is normal. Mm-hmm. What what are the normal values for certain for certain aspects of the pulmonary function test? Mm-hmm. And we just switched our data set to one that is much more broadly uh, uh, inclusive. Previously, the the data set was mostly white folks, but now the new one that we switched to is much more broadly broadly inclusive and makes it an easier way to interpret and be more accurate about those interpretations. And that's important, Ugo, because, and it's even not just about the racial makeup of genetic information. Mm -hmm. Also, you want that genetic information to be all inclusive of different genders as well. So there are some studies where drugs have gained approval in some instances where the majority of the patients in that trial might be males mm-hmm. or the majority of the patients in that trial might be females. Right, right. It's important to have comprehensive gender makeup as well, because that informs outcomes, right. that informs the accuracy and the validity of the data. Yeah. Especially mm-hmm. where individualized decisions are going to be made from that uh, information. Exactly. So, the other thing I find really interesting about you is that you mm-hmm. you are truly multifaceted. Like you you have some really cool interests, which right? means I can't keep still. Because <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite things is that you are. I don't know if graphic designing is the right word, but you, you can, we can say that. Yeah, because yes. you, you, yes. you, you is it painting? Yes. Tell, tell me a little bit about arts, that. Yeah, graphic art. arts. Tell me a little bit about how you got into that. Yes, just we're really the pandemic, so. Mm. I've always, well, I'll back up. So my grandmother is an artist. Mm. So I've always been around art. So when I was growing up, I would be surrounded. Her home, she would always have her paintings around the house. Mm-hmm. Her sculptures would be around the house. She was, she's, I mean, she's just an incredible individual. Mm-hmm. I mean, she used to be a model as well back oh, wow. in the day. Wow. She even got invited to go to Europe. To model. To model. And she turned it down. And I tease her to this day. I said, I could have been born in Europe. You know, anyway, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. But 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 so she was an artist. So I've always loved art. Mm-hmm. And when you think about science, science is art. There's even so much so to where folks are changing STEM and adding an A and advocating Steam. for STEAM education, oh. science, technology, engineering, art, and math. Gotcha, because gotcha. it's all comprehensive. Gotcha. And so I've always, so during the pandemic, I'm at home with the new puppy and I'm working from home. We don't know what's going to happen. I mean, at that point, we didn't know. We didn't know we'll all still have jobs. Right, we didn't know if the right. earth was coming to an end. We, we just, we didn't know. <laughs> we didn't know anything. Right. So I, I started finding ways to occupy my mind and I started creating digital art. And so it's, it's, a, it's a great way for me to express myself. And, That's awesome. And, and poetry as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you do poetry. And uh, obviously, you do your digital art. Yes. How? What? What do you see that 
what role do you see that playing in the future for you? Is it is it going to be because right now it's kind of, it's like it's, it's more of a hobby. I, I think it, it is. It's more of a hobby. Do you, do you think you're going to lean into that as you get as as time passes? Well, I'll, I'll be honest. As I see you lean in, yeah, and and lean into doing podcasts, yeah. and it, it gives me inspiration to lean in too. Yeah. And I was already leaning in, but yeah. sometimes it's, it's just good to see other people lean in as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. You know that we won't count. <laughs> if, you know we are not all self serving. We right. need to see some inspiration to our left and right you know so 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 i think um i think i will lean into it a little bit more and become more vulnerable with it yeah that's beautiful and i've been writing poetry for years have hundreds of poems do just you, sitting do, there do you, uh, you just, just sitting there do you have anything in the public forum or is it all just kind of private? it's all it's all in me how about the art how about the art? art? It's all private. Nice. It's all private. I have an IG page called Doodle the Science. That's the one. And so I have some digital art on That's there. Available. But it's just for play. It's not anything that I'm purposely promoted or anything yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. But it's all for fun. Yeah. But it's not to say, I mean, I'll tell you, I put myself out there. I made all the art in my home. Which I've seen, which, which is beautiful. <laughs> beautiful. And for the first time, I put one of my some of my creations on mm-hmm. large format mm-hmm. posters yeah. or canvas. Yeah, yeah. And it came out pretty nice. So and I, I'm I'm supposed to get a couple of them to put up in here in my yeah, yeah, got, yeah, 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 yeah. We gotta still make that yeah, happen. Yeah, we gotta make that happen. Yeah, we gotta make that happen. So what's next for you? Uh you 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 sound fulfilled. Mm-hmm. You sound like you you're you're in your strive right now. Yeah. You you spread your wings. Mm-hmm. You're flying, you're soaring. Mm-hmm. What's next? You know, I'll back up and I feel like I'm in route mm. or route to really soaring. Gotcha. You understand? So you don't feel like you're soaring yet? Not yet. Okay. Not okay. yet. I, I'm still playing the safe in some regards. I'm still tiptoeing below the surface, still looking to my left and mm-hmm. right and wondering what someone's going to think or what yeah. someone's going to say and... Honestly, what's next for me is just stepping into my bravery okay, and, and being more courageous with the aspects of myself that people don't always see mm-hmm. and being bold too, like being bold about what I want and leaning into areas that I know I should be leaning into. Gotcha. It's kind of like, you know, you should be doing this, right, right, but you're not doing it. And that weighs on you when you know you're supposed to be doing something, but you're not activating it. Yeah. And so for me, it's really like revving that up. What do you what do you think that looks like? What, what do you look like? How you put me you on the that? spot? Yeah. Uh, for me, for me, it will look like number one, owning the space. So I want to own that space, but I want to share it more, mm. and I want to help the public have a stronger appreciation for science and understand its implications for their lives mm-hmm. and and being a voice of truth and basing whatever I say in facts I'm, I'm a scientist so mm-hmm. I I gotta be backed by data right um that's just how I roll I, every you know I try not to extrapolate too much or yeah. try to for speak a lot as some people that are really talented in that I'm mm-hmm. real careful with that because I was always taught if you have if you don't have the data to back it up then you shouldn't really be saying it. Right. But at the same time, that created a bit of a barrier and a hesitancy and a risk aversion in me in some regards. Gotcha. So I wanna I wanna back that out a little bit mm-hmm. and lean more into how can I be more of service in that space? Right. How can I, how can I, whether it's 
doing things like this, forums like this, yeah. or even if it means sharing science in some cool creative way. You know, when I was when I was young, I used to watch Bill Nye the Science yeah, Guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, how cool would it be if he was black? You know? <laughs> you could be, you could be. Brian Wilson, the science dude. Listen, look, <laughs> if you need a new version of it, you should do it. I'll audition. Show you me the do. look, I will send my audition tape in. You have you I love Bill Nye. Yeah. Shout out to Bill Nye. Shout, <laughs> shout out to Bill Nye. We should get him on the podcast. Yes, yes, you should. <laughs> yeah, that would be awesome. That would be awesome. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. How how I think Hearing you talk, I'm I'm curious. How would you inspire a young boy or a little young girl that wants to be a scientist? What What would you say to that young boy, or young girl, to encourage them um, to 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 stick with it, to stay curious? What 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 yeah. What would you say? I would say, and I'll think about myself. I'll answer from when I was little mm -hmm. because. When I was growing up, I did, there were no black scientists. And nobody in my immediate circle wanted to be a scientist. Right, right. All of my friends are doctors right, like you. Right. And nobody, nobody right. wanted to be a, nobody wanted to get a PhD. No one understood it. It was just, what are you doing? You're not right. going to medical school. Right. You should you what is that? You know, even my grandfather, rest in peace, until he passed. Even the day of my wedding, he was still asking me, what do you do, what do, you do again? <laughs> and do those people treat you right? right, right that right. was always his two questions. He would, even at my graduation, he pulled me to the side. Now tell me what you do again. <laughs> and are those people treating you right? Yeah, yeah. Because we know sometimes we're not always treated right. right. And so what I'll tell a young person is maintain your inspiration and don't worry so much if you're the only one, mm. because you will be sometimes. And, and it's just not just about what you look like or your race. You might just be the only one who think like how you think. Right. And that's just as isolating sometimes as physical else. isolation. Right, right. So don't be distracted by that. I had a mentor. He will always say, Brian, don't succumb to weapons of mass distraction. Mm. And so I would tell young kids, uh, young adults who are trying to find their way, they're not sure about science, jump in, leap in, take chances. It's sort of like the magic school bus. Take, take chances. Take chances. Get make, messy. Get messy. Make mistakes. Yeah. Shout out to magic school yeah, bus. Miss Frizzle. Miss Frizzle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, for, but seriously, it's, it's this leaning into this ritualistic vulnerability of trying, trying again, trying again. Knowing you can be wrong. Knowing that you can be wrong. And fail. And fail, but still succeed. Yeah. Because we talked about that. Yeah. You're not penalized for a failure. You're only penalized when you eject yourself out of the game. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, a lot of the great things that I've done and have been able to achieve, nobody has been wanted, no one wanted to be bothered with them. <laughs> Even some of the great projects that right. I'm on at work, yeah. I was the N of one. Right. That's a scientific term for one. Right. One one research subject, right, N of one. Right, right. But I was always a, the only person in the beginning and having to rally. So, And also I tell people, don't be afraid to share your story. So share what you like. Don't hold it in. Mm -hmm. Because if you hold it in, no one can see it. Right. And no one can receive it. Mm -hmm. And you never know who who might have the passion 
that may want to align themselves to your passion right, right. or to your purpose. Mm -hmm. And you'd be surprised there are so many people that can help you if you share. It's sort of like if your hand is, is closed like this, mm -hmm. you can't hold anything. But if you open your hand, you can receive a lot more. Right, right. So be open. Open yourself up. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Thanks for sharing your story. This was really awesome. We got we got to get back together and uh, do. and dive into some more of this stuff. This is really good. Thank we you do. so much. Thank you for really having good. me, brother. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. That was too bad. All right. That was good. <laughs> thank you, man. That, that was, was awesome. good. That was no, really thank good. you. I enjoyed it. Yeah, that was fun.